0: Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. You can find a link to that at my website. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at brand new movies out in theaters, VOD, streaming services, whatever catches my interest or I think would be fun to talk about I will talk about on that show, the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find a link to that at Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of a three-part series, looking at films of the 1980s. Well, today's is not from the 1980s, but I'm talking about films which feature apes as part of the main character cast. Last week, I looked at Tarzan the Ape Man, and this week, I'm going to be looking at the king of all of these kinds of films, although it's a remake of the king. It is from 1976 and it is called King Kong. And the reason why I'm throwing it in here is because the next movie I'm going to be talking about is its sequel, but I'll get into that toward the end of the show. King Kong, the remake, of course, of the 1933 film. This one featuring Jeff Bridges, Jessica Lange, and Charles Grodin, John Randolph, Renee Vergenois. The director of this film is John Gilliman. The screenplay credited to Lorenzo Semple Jr. It's a PG rated film. This pre existed, of course, by quite a bit, the PG 13 rating. The runtime. For this film is two hours and 14 minutes. Now, of course, I like to talk about the making of these films when I start off my show. And this is one of those movies that has a lot of different people that claim that they came up with the idea of King Kong in their own way. So what I decided to do was to try to amalgamate some of these anecdotal stories to come up with kind of a plausible way that they, they could all be right and deliver it as kind of a seamless narrative. It's not necessarily 100% accurate, but somewhere in there, the truth probably lies. We start back in December of 1974, and that's when ABC Network's Michael Eisner, he was watching 1933's King Kong on television with his family. And after it was done, he remarked, boy, what a great movie that that had been for its time. Flash forward several months, early to mid-April of 1975, Michael Eisner was watching a preview of this Broadway show called Clams on the Half Shell Review, and that starred Bette Midler and there 's a scene in that show in which Midler appears atop the Empire State Building and she 's in the palm of King Kong and Then and there, Michael Eisner grew convinced that a remake was long overdue, so he brought up this idea to his old boss at ABC, who had left to become Paramount Pictures Chairman. His name is Barry Diller. But Diller did not display any kind of response, no reaction to this idea. Eisner thought this was pretty typical for Diller, but a day later, Eisner decided to bring up the King Kong remake idea while he was having dinner with Sid Sheinberg, his friend from. MCA. MCA happened to be the parent company of Universal Pictures, and Scheinberg enthusiastically agreed that this would be a great idea. And after the success of 1974's Earthquake, Universal, they were eagerly looking for additional films to market its vibration-producing sense sound system into theaters, and Scheinberg suggested to one of the Universal producers that King Kong would be a natural fit as their next picture. So they sought out RKO General to acquire the rights to remake their 1933 classic. On April 15th, 1975, Universal felt that they had scored a binding oral contract with this negotiating attorney who was working with RKO General for exclusive rights to remake King Kong and to produce one sequel. Now, during this period, or maybe even shortly afterward, Paramount's Diller, Barry Diller, he suggested to independent Italian film producer Dino De Laurentiis De Laurentiis had recently moved his operations to the United States. Diller began to talk to De Laurentiis about possibly making a movie, a monster movie on the level of Jaws that was just about to be released into theaters that he could make for Paramount. And Dino, he had already been thinking about this because he had this notion of remaking King Kong in his mind, seeing it day after day on this poster on his daughter Francesca's wall prior to moving to Beverly Hills from New York. If De Laurentiis could get it made, Barry Diller said Paramount would agree to fund half of the $12 million budget that they would allot for distribution rights. And on May 6th, 1975, De Laurentiis signed a King Kong deal with his personal friend Tom O'Neill. Tom O'Neill happened to be the head of RKO General and who really was the only one who had the rights to sign for this deal. De Laurentiis would give RKO $200,000 and a percentage of the gross, which was really what Tom O'Neill wanted, and that was the difference between him choosing De La and Universal, who only wanted to give him a percentage of the profits, not the gross. After De Laurentiis put out giant trade ads announcing this deal, Universal filed a twenty-five million dollar lawsuit against him and RKO for a breach of contract for fraud and for international interference with advantageous business relations. But Universal was unable to gain a lot of traction in court without a signed contract. So the lawyers found a new tactic to try to gain the right to make their movie. They found out that prior to RKO's film, King Kong was made into a novelization by Delos W. Lovelace, which was also serialized without a special copyright in the pages of Mystery Magazine. And it was based on the Edgar Wallace and Marion C. Cooper draft script to King Kong, and not the final script that was used for release in cinemas. The Copyright Act of 1909 stipulated that the rights holders of properties had to re-register every 28 years, and the copyright to the book and mystery magazine ceased in 1960 because no one thought to renew the rights, and therefore, Universal stipulated that the King Kong concept was in the public domain. They did not need permission to proceed with their movie. In trying to beat De Laurentiis to the punch, Universal announced a start date of January 5th, 1976. They put in Hunt Stromberg to produce, they hired Joseph Sargent to direct, and to try to get around any additional copyright issues, Universal commissioned Bo Goldman to adapt strictly the Lovelace novelization. They would title their proposed feature The Legend of King Kong. And unlike the modern updating that was proposed by De Laurentiis, Universal planned to set their picture When the novel was written back in the 1930s, with the Empire State Building climax and similar stop motion photography that was used eventually for the movie, courtesy of Jim Danforth, they would bring this stop motion, though, this older style, much more up to date. Susan Blakely and Peter Falk were already in talks to have the inside track as the stars of the film. They were really rushing ahead. And Delorantis, he had to step on the gas. He had originally intended his production to start in April 15th, so he was going to get it as close as possible to try to shoot some footage before Universal started theirs. The closest he could get was January 15th, just 10 days after Universal started theirs. He hoped that he could get his King Kong into theaters before Universal, Or, in the interim, stop them altogether because he was going to file a $90 million countersuit for infringement while RKO also sued Universal for $5 million in damages. And in their case, they wanted Universal to cease production on their version of King Kong altogether. In response to Universal's title of The Legend of King Kong, Delorentis wanted to add his own subtitle in response called The Legend Reborn. De then commissioned Towering Inferno poster artist John Berkey to compose several mock-ups for the upcoming King Kong. Dino liked this one that Berkey created with King Kong atop the World Train Center, and he liked it so much that it pretty much clinched this as the setting for the King Kong climax to come. De Laurentiis secured the services for the screenplay from Lorenzo Semple Jr., who had just worked as the screenwriter for Dino's very successful Three Days of the Condor or just the same year, and De Laurentiis stressed the need to Semple to differentiate the new film from the original film, and that was to try to avoid getting critics to make fun of their movie for being just an expensive rehash. Kind of ironic here, because critics instead complained that the new Kong was not enough like the original film, so I guess there was just no win in this battle, but De Laurentiis, he still wanted a modern take, and he wanted to emphasize the Beauty and the Beast love story much more. Even if the formula remained fundamentally the same, he was going to play to more modern audiences and their sensibilities. So Semple also drew in to that modern and relevant King Kong structure, because the 1970s were known for a lot of message movies. So he would put his own message in here of an environmental message against corporate exploitation. Now, in Simple's plot, there's this gasoline corporation named Petrox, and they send out this expedition to this uncharted island near Micronesia that's been obscured by perpetual fog, and they want to find out if there's going to be any oil deposits there. Stowing away on the ship is Jack Prescott, who's this anthropologist from Princeton University. He stows away because he's curious if the reports of a giant primate residing there are True. So along the way, they also pick up another unexpected passenger in this woman named Duan. She's this aspiring American actress who is adrift in a lifeboat that they scoop up on the way to their destination. And what they find on that island, instead of usable oil, is a gorilla six times the size of a normal ape. He is the god to which the native villagers on that island sacrifice their women, of which Duan becomes the next in line. So Kong, he takes a liking to Duan and he doesn't kill her. And instead, he ends up getting captured by the Petrox people who plan to take him back to the United States to gain publicity and money for their corporation by exploiting this giant ape. There's kind of a plot hole here that kind of bothers me. They actually get the massive... King Kong, transported to the ship's hold without any explanation as to how they actually do this. Now, problems arise when the ape goes back to New York and he escapes and he begins destroying the city, searching for Dwan. I suppose there's more to the story than that, but that's basically the setup, and pretty much everybody knows the King Kong story if you're a cinephile of any measure. Now, Dino De Laurentiis thought his version of King Kong was going to be even bigger than Jaws, which was a massive hit, the number one biggest money earner of all time, at least at that time. And it would be bigger than Jaws, not only because King Kong was a known property everybody knew, but because of the appeal of its monster intrinsically to the story. No one really shed a tear for the shark's death in Jaws, but after seeing his King Kong, Dino felt everyone was going to be walking out of the theater crying. And his Kong was not going to be this scary monster movie, but it was going to be a tragedy and initially, Dino conceived of Kong very differently. He was not going to be fully an ape. He was more like an ape man, like in between a human and an ape, the missing link, but giant-sized, and and that was done primarily to make the love story much more plausible. Audiences would fall in love with this ape man just as much as the leading lady. And in his version, the greed of humankind is the actual monster. King Kong is the misunderstood victim. Now, for the director, Dino immediately obviously was going to seek out Steven Spielberg. He had just made Jaws, and he was red hot, but Spielberg didn't want to do another monster film to follow Jaws, and he also didn't think that King Kong ever needed to be remade to begin with. He then asked Roman Polanski, but Polanski didn't want to do a movie starring a giant monkey. Milo Forman, Sidney Pollack, Michael Winner, Sam Peckapall, they all were asked but also passed, and so that left John Gillerman. And Gillerman was already working for De Laurentiis on another movie called The Hurricane, And Gilliman seemed much more of a natural fit to follow up The Towering Inferno, which was a large-scale, special effects-laden movie. He could do King Kong, kind of as another disaster movie of a sort. De Laurentiis was going to be very involved here. He served as his own line producer to ensure his film was going to be done his way. And the shoot would occupy seven sound stages on the MGM lot, including this 50 foot wall built on the back lot where the villagers reside to make their sacrifices to Kong. That wall required eight weeks to build, and it cost alone a million dollars of the budget. Stop motion photography. Dino felt that that was not going to impress modern audiences. He thought that the effects would need to be upgraded. So De thought he could make kind of Kong as a puppet, and he would be moving through miniature sets or in front of blue screens. But because Jaws had a mechanical shark and audiences bought that as real, he felt that they could make a robotic King Kong kind of like Jaws, but much more state-of-the-art as a way to go. So They planned a $2 million, 45-foot-high, 6.5-ton, electronically controlled model of this ape that can walk in strides of 15 feet. Various parts of Kong would also have to be built, his arms and his hands, and that would be used separately for different angles, different close-ups, designed all by Italian craftsman Carlo Rambaldi. Designer Glenn Robinson was hired to help with the mechanical Kong. He approached an aircraft carrier company to construct very elaborate pieces, but the aircraft carrier company told Glenn Robinson that it was going to take about three years to do all the things he wanted them to do. De wanted his film completed by the end of 1976, so about eight months realistically of time before they needed to have Kong done to be able to shoot any kind of footage at all. And Robinson had to come up with something very quick on his own. He went to this nearby construction shop on the MGM lot and he consulted technicians who worked in the amusement park industry on how they mechanized large characters to perform very simple but effective movements. Although they initially had some delays because of having to wait for Kong to be put in place, they accidentally made two right hands. The Argentinian horsetail hair-covered arms worked out better than the mechanized full-size Kong ever would. It very effectively cradled Duan with the help of a crane. There were a couple of times when the hands didn't always act as they should, squeezed their actress a little bit too hard or knocked her in the head from swinging into her. And despite so much time and money expended on this mechanical Kong, it never did work quite right not only mechanically, but also in terms of the emotional payoff intended. It just did not move or seem natural, and it just was going to be a bust. It would only appear in about six shots in the final film released theatrically, and that comprised less than 30 seconds worth of the completed film, despite all the money and the time that they expended on it. Even with that, Rimbaldi and Robinson and also Frank Vanderveer would win an Academy Award for Special Achievement in Visual Effects, even though that mechanical Kong never worked and it was barely in the film. Now, De has received even more bad news. He received some negative publicity because he put out these trade ads around Hollywood looking for a tall, well-built black man to play Kong the Ape Man that he had in mind he felt that the closest that you could get to a gorilla but still be human was that, unfortunately. And he had these buff black men come in and they mimicked gorilla-like movements for the audition. And when word of that got out, obviously civil rights groups Protested vehemently. And so Dino had to issue a denial. He stated that the ethnicity did not matter because you would only see the actor's eyes. You know, it could be any kind of ethnicity. So he withdrew the ads and claimed that uh, no harm, no foul, even though it raised quite a kerfuffle at the time. And tired of delays, De Laurentiis decided he was just going to move forward. He was going to opt for somebody in an ape suit to do as much of the footage as he could and hoped that the Mechanical Kong would at some point come into play. Stop-motion animators in the business, they asked De Laurentiis if he wanted their help for work, but it was just going to take too long to do it the stop-motion way. He said he was going to go with this Mechanical Ape and a man in an ape suit to fill in whatever the Mechanical Ape couldn't do. At that point, the stop-motion animators recommended somebody that they knew, a, a man who specialized in ape suits, makeup specialist Rick Baker. He's a young guy, about 25, 26 years old. Baker's first role as an actor was actually playing King Kong in a short film from 1972 called Volkswagen 411, He had already knew that they were making this King Kong remake, he found out from John Landis. And he thought if they were not going to use stop motion techniques, it was probably going to be a travesty because they were going to stick some poor schmuck in an ape suit and it just was going to look really cheesy. And Baker would find out firsthand about that because De Laurentiis called him in and talked to him and hired him. Not only to create the suit, but because he looked so convincing when he was in the suit, mimicking these gorilla movements, Gillerman cast him in the role as King Kong in the ape suit. Baker's impressive gorilla suit also caused them to abandon this missing link idea and to portray Kong as a giant gorilla. And Baker, at this point of his career, he had been so fascinated with apes. Since he was a kid, he had fashioned several ape suits over the years, and he really was enthused about making this creation, even though the film itself, he seemed to be kind of against. But he was really putting himself into his work, so to speak, because he was inside his own suit- On the screen, but he couldn't last more than three hours in this very poorly ventilated, bearskin-covered suit, very heavy, very hot, so they hired another actor around Rick Baker's size, a man named Bill Shepard, and he was going to take over in the suit whenever Baker needed a breather. Gillerman said that the acting between Shepard and Baker was noticeably different. So Shepard instead became much more like a stunt double. He would perform some of the more dangerous scenes in the Kong suit and give Baker a breather to do some of the easier work where he could act a little bit more up close. Adino wanted Kong to be very expressive. He wanted him to be able to Smile and charm his way through a love story. So, five distinct masks were made depending on Kong's mood in any given situation, depending on the scene. A first of its kind hydraulic valve system was placed inside the masks to change the expression of Kong to smile, to frown, to look confused, or get angry. These were Carlo Rambaldi's creations, even though Baker did pretty much the rest of the suit. Unfortunately, these artificial looking expressions do provide some of the unintentionally funny moments for many. Any film goers today. Toward the end of this film, Delorentis was so impressed by the way Rick Baker acted in this suit and the way that it came across that he bragged that Baker was going to get a Best Actor Oscar nomination out of this. As either an homage or maybe possibly an insult, Baker played a character the following year when he did Kentucky Fried Movie for John Landis. His ape character was called Dino. For the female lead, De Laurentiis drew interest from Barbara Streisand, but she said that she was not going to be available until May, and because of the race with Universal, that just was not going to work. He consulted Valerie Perrine, but she was under contract with Universal, so obviously that was going to be out. Bette Midler, who was kind of the inspiration for the idea for this remake of King Kong, if you believe Michael Eisner anyway, she was not interested. And Cher was consulted, but she was in the midst of a pregnancy at the time, she was visibly pregnant, and that was not going to work either. They sought out some comedic actresses because there was going to be a lot of comic relief in their film. Elaine Joyce and Goldie Hawn were considered. They looked at Margot Hemingway, who was working on another of Dino's films at that time called Lipstick. Many actresses were auditioning for the role as well, unknown actresses at that time, including Bo Derrick and Melanie Griffith, among them. Meryl Streep also auditioned for the role. Actually, her audition was abbreviated. Dino, when Meryl Streep came in and started performing, said to his son Federico in Italian, Federico had called Streep in because he had seen her in a play and thought she was fantastic, Dino asked Federico why he brought her in. She's ugly. And Streep, who Dino didn't know had studied a year of Italian at Vassar College, answered, sorry to disappoint you, and walked out. After looking at so many women, they contemplated offering actress Deborah Raffin the part, and that's when Gulf and Western head Charles Blodorn suggested a model that he had seen in New York that could work for the role. So they flew out his recommendation, Jessica Lang, for her screen test. Jessica Lang came in, she was not made up, she looked wiry thin, she had braces, and but because of the recommendation from Gulf and Western's head, she was allowed to continue on with her audition, and she auditioned very well, so well that they had her audition again and again, and higher brass at Paramount and some of the makers came in until finally they brought in John Gillerman to check out her audition. And he thought that she actually could work, so he had one more test that he wanted to do. He wanted a screen test to see what she would look like on film, and when he finally saw what she looked like, projected onto the screen, Gillerman exuberantly shouted, I found my Fay Ray." So the last test involved was going to be calling in Dino De Laurentiis. And De Laurentiis, when he saw it, he was impressed too. He offered Lang the part and a seven-year contract on condition that she could get a makeover so that she wouldn't look, at least in Dino's words, like a scarecrow. Gillerman instructed Lang, who was now made up fabulously, to play the role of Duan with Echoes of Marilyn Monroe. She would eventually receive a Golden Globe for her performance in this film for Best New Actress. Press for time for the other roles. Chris Randon, who Delorente's had in Lipstick as well. He had been approached to come aboard and play the male lead, but he turned it down. Jeff Bridges, who was next in line. He was an avid fan of the original King Kong. He signed on happily to do the remake. Tony Award-winning actor Charles Grodin was cast against type for the greedy corporate suit Fred Wilson. Grodin sought the part of Jack Prescott, the male lead, but Dino preferred him as Wilson kind of cajoled him into taking the role. At this point, Paramount was in an uncomfortable position because it still wasn't settled between Universal and De La And Paramount did not want to get involved with taking sides in the feud because not only because they worked with De La Rentis, but because they had partnerships with Universal on other projects. So soon after production was underway, MCA president Sid Sheinberg and his managing partner, Lou Wasserman, they met with Charles Bloodhorn and Barry Diller to strike a deal, and they came up with a settlement. De Laurentiis and Universal would withdraw their legal actions against each other, except for those involving RKO. Those were still on. De Laurentiis could proceed with his picture without having to worry about competition. He would drop the Legend Reborn from the title, and Universal would have to wait at least 18 months before they released their version of King Kong. In exchange for waiting, Universal would receive from De Laurentiis 11% of the profits. Kind of a sweet deal for Universal, but Delorentis was okay with it because he felt that if there were two King Kongs in the theater around the same time, neither of them would be as successful as just one alone. Kauai served as Kong's Island. Additional shoots took place in New York and Los Angeles and in in-studio at MGM. During this period, the budget escalated to about $17 million because... Dino De Laurentiis was growing unhappy with all of these gorilla suits, and he wanted more expression, more emotion to be evident to make it work as a love story, so they would have to go back and redo a lot of the work that they had already did. Some miniature sets had to be created in meticulous detail for their Kong in a suit to walk through and destroy, and that included a small-scale subway train sequence. Unfortunately, that full-scale Kong model by the end of this film was a complete bust. It was unable to ever move realistically, no matter how much effort that they put into it. It even cost Dino De Laurentiis about $3 million spent because he had to shut down production to work out all of the kinks and to get other parts of the movie caught up so that they could move on with just filming with somebody in a suit. Gilliman had to shoot all of these scenes that didn't require a full-size Kong, and they were running behind schedule, and the costs escalated by the end to $24 million, making King Kong, the remake, the second most expensive Hollywood production to that date behind Cleopatra. The film's ending was also kind of a heated debate. The original screenplay called for Fred Wilson to realize that he may have wrecked the world by allowing King Kong to roam free in New York. Wilson surviving did not score well with the test audiences. They thought he should not be alive at the end. So they recaptured this moment in which Kong steps over Wilson during a certain sequence. They changed that to him actually crushing him into the ground. They also cut part of the ending that test audiences also didn't like, where Jack walks away from Duan and disappears into the crowd that's surrounding Kong. He knew that they would not work as a couple without Kong, and audiences found that ending dissatisfying, so they cut out his walking away. To get that ending where the crowd gathers around the fallen Kong thousands and thousands of people, De La Renta sent out a press release claiming that the Port Authority denied clearance for their mechanical Kong to straddle the Twin Towers. That was kind of a publicity stunt and it was definitely absurd because... They had built a 45-foot-tall ape. It couldn't possibly span the 200 feet between the two towers. They put down a styrofoam giant ape at ground level to attract about 30,000 spectators to gather around, and they did not have to pay any of them as extras. The 50 bucks a pop usually afforded, so they saved some money there, I guess. When the film finally came out, critics were pretty much against the film. They were shocked that anyone would try to remake the classic film. Blockbusters, you know, they were kind of a new phenomenon at the time. Jaws was really deemed the first real one, and big-budget films were considered in the 70s to be lesser in quality the country was enduring a recession and they looked down upon lavish productions at least until the following year when star wars came out king kong still though made 90 million dollars worldwide far short of the 470 million that jaws took worldwide but it still pulled off a nice little profit even though chunks of it were going to universal as well as rko 1976s King Kong it is a bubble-headed but entertaining remake it is highly uneven when you watch it it ranges from exceptionally good during certain parts downright awful in certain parts special effects are both impressive and laughable it really runs the gamut of good and great and bad and awful and a fine ensemble of actors they do what they can the dialogue is fairly painful at times the opting for forced laughs it relies far too frequently on a film that also tries to double as a heart-wrenching tragedy. King Kong does, despite the sophistication of the suits, he does look like a guy in a gorilla suit. In the end, you don't necessarily feel like this is a real gorilla. Pacing can be an issue, languishing during certain scenes that run long. The expense of the feature is a problem too. De Laurentiis wanted many of the props and sets and costumes that he had paid big money for to be represented on the screen. So they appear in very lengthy scenes, whether they add to the story or not, because he wanted to show off these things that he had paid big money for. And in the end, I think the real knock on it is that it's hard to really make out what the intent of this version of King Kong is. Is it a remake? Is it a spoof? Is it an homage? Is it an effects movie? Is it an earnest love story? Is it a camp comedy? Is it a tragedy? Is it a commentary on environmental exploitation? Well, the answer is all of the above, but it's not quite enough to make it a good example of any one of them. So depending on what you're looking for coming in, you'll get a little bit of what you like, but you won't get a lot. And so it does maintain a watchability because of the scattershot approach, but it's not enough to hit most people very strongly in any particular direction, depending on their expectations. This giant ape seems content to reach only for a The low-hanging fruit much of the time. I think there are enough effective scenes here to think that a good film might have been made with some judicious editing. There's at least a half hour of padded scenes to show off the special effects. Instead of pushing forward the story, as I mentioned, the filmmakers here I do think are successful in evoking sympathy for the Beast, enough to make the ending resonate. But I do think that in the end, King Kong, this remake, aims so broadly that it does fail to surpass the original. Despite a very game cast here, impressive technical specs, and a great John Barry score, I think its most enduring gift to cinema in the end is that it made ultimately a star out of Jessica Lange. So I guess you can give them thank you for that. She's a fantastic actress. But I think the movie is just such a mixed bag. I can't quite give it a full recommendation, even though I've watched this film Constantly. And I'm always entertained by it in a certain respect, but I also am kind of laughing at it in another respect because there's so much of this film that really just does not work that's in between those parts that do work. So a real mixed bag, a roller coaster ride, kind of that amusement park ride at Universal Studios. So for that, I'm going to give King Kong two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that it had all of the tools, it had all of the talent to make a winning picture here, but it just could not get it quite together. And I think the rushed production and the unclear vision as to what exactly that they wanted to make, it probably was shifting on a day-to-day basis depending on what parts that they had working at any given time. It resulted in a clunky production that eventually became a clunky feature film. And so two and a half stars is the best I can give. King Kong even though you know it's kind of a guilty pleasure and because it is just one of those kinds of movies that you can watch and enjoy for the things that you like you ignore the things that you don't If you have your own thoughts on King Kong that you want to impart, you can reach me at my website. You can go to quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can find links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram, my email there. Email's probably the best bet to get in touch with me. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other reviews, including reviews of the 1933 version, as well as the 2005 version that was done later by Peter Jackson. So I have all of that reviewed at my website, quipster.net. As for next week, you're probably well ahead of me. I wouldn't have be reviewing this movie as an 80s film if I weren't going to be talking about its follow-up. It came out 10 years after King Kong, almost to the day. It is called King Kong Lives. And yes, King Kong does live, by the way. It is King Kong in the 1986 film. As for how and why, I will get into that on the next episode because he sure as heck did seem like he died at the end of this one. So, King Kong lives from 1986 on the next episode. So, even if you don't watch it, I do encourage you to listen to that review because I do have a lot to say about it. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.